Would you open your Bibles to uh, Psalm 50, please? So enjoyed how much the Word of God has been a part of our service this morning. And if you're kind of new to the church, uh, this church is about the Word of God. We're, we're not trying to come up with new things. Uh, God's spoken. We just want to say what He said. And that's good enough for us. And uh, <laughs> I trust it's going to be good enough for you because that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, for thousands of years, the Psalms have been an incredible uh, means of comfort and strength to God's people. Uh, they... Whatever situations we're in, and I know that you all have experienced uh, a number of hard, hard situations recently, uh, but whatever situation we're in, trouble, joy, sorrow, desperation, repentance, the Psalms give us words to speak to God, to comfort us in our fears and our sorrows and our confusion and our joys. Words like these, save me, O God. Anybody can pray that. Save me, O God. Preserve me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Have mercy on me. These are, these are words any of us can pray when we find ourselves in situations that we think, I don't know what to do. Lead me, O Lord. Teach me your way. I trust you. Be exalted. I give thanks to you. I love you. The Psalms give us words, and we can relate so often to those words because they're saying what we're thinking and what we're going through. But Psalm 50 is a little different. It's one of the rare psalms that focuses not so much on our situation as God's perspective. Not our perspective, it's God's perspective. Not our thoughts, God's thoughts. And it's God in His eternal glory and His majestic holiness. He's shining forth in splendor and he's calling his people together, that's us, and he's saying, listen to what I'm going to say. So how appropriate that, that we get to hear what God is going to say through this, through Psalm 50. Psalm 73 said, it is good to be near God. As we read Psalm 50, it suggests that it might be said it's sobering to be near God as we hear what he has to say. Because the scene is a cosmic courtroom, a theophany, a, where God is appearing to his people and he's addressing some of the deficiencies in their worship. And this isn't, the, Larry and Devin didn't ask me, would you preach on this? Because we're, we're deficient. It's for all of us, anytime. God's saying, this is what I'm looking for when you come to worship me. And if you want a title for today, it's what God looks for in our worship. Here, as in many parts of the Bible, we see God's not indifferent to when we meet. He cares about how we worship Him. And as we work through this psalm, we're going to see that God-pleasing worship is offered by those who are genuinely thankful and humbly obedient. That's what God-pleasing worship is. It's offered by those who are genuinely thankful and humbly obedient. God was shining forth in glory before we even existed. Before anything existed. He was there. He was beautiful. He had everything he needed. We did nothing to bring God into existence. I, said, I heard someone say the other day, I don't believe in God. You know what? That doesn't affect God's existence. He's not dependent on our belief to exist. We are dependent on his work to exist, but he's not dependent on ours. 
So he absolutely deserves our worship, and he gets to define it. He gets to say what it should look like, what it should be. So let's turn our hearts and ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us through this psalm, words that will both convict and transform us. This is the Word of God. This is the most important thing you will hear this morning. A psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. This is God speaking. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. A lot of stuff in there. 
We're going to try and unpack it in three sections. Here's the first. The judge of worship. Verses 1 through 6. The judge of of worship. This is a far cry from the pastoral setting of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Here he's the judge. And we, we see a number of things about him being the judge. The first is the seriousness of the setting. Throughout Psalm 50, and especially at the beginning, SF makes numerous references that remind us of God meeting with his people at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. So in verse 3, we read about the fire and the tempest. Well, that's a lot like the fire and the thunder and the lightning that they experienced at Mount Sinai. In verse 7, when he says, I am God, your God, that sounds a lot like God's introduction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where he says, I am the Lord, your God. In verses 18 through 20, he references three of the Ten Commandments. So you have all these references to God meeting with his people at Mount Sinai, which was one of the most sobering events in the history of the Old Testament. So that's the first thing we see. This is a serious setting. And then we see the supremacy of the judge. Verse 1 begins, The Mighty One, God, the Lord. Now when you go up to introduce yourself to someone, you usually don't say an extended number of titles. Maybe you do, and you've got a problem if you do. You usually say something like, I am your name. I'm Bob. Hey, I'm Bob. That's it. It's not like this here. I am the Mighty One, God, the Lord. It's actually three words, El, Elohim, Yahweh, meaning, each means something different, God in His might, God in His awesomeness, and God in His covenant relationship it's a big deal asaph wants to get our attention god wants to get our attention he's the one who's speaking is not like anybody else he's powerful he's awesome and he's made a covenant with you and in verses four and six all of creation the heavens and the earth are called to testify of god's righteousness he calls to the heavens above to the earth that it may judge his people Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So we can trust these words. The awesome, the mighty, the transcendent, the all-authoritative God is speaking. It means we can trust what he's going to say. God has a perspective on our meetings that we don't have. We can talk about our meetings. We can talk about whether we like the songs, the flow, the order of the service, how the preaching went. Here, God's evaluating. And I was thinking this even as we were singing this morning. I was thinking of what I was going to say. and said, wow, God's evaluating this right now. He's looking at us and he's saying, this is, this is what I want for you. That's what we're going to learn this morning. God's come to judge us not because he wants to punish us, not because he wants to catch us doing something wrong. You weren't worshiping me the way I told you to. Shame on you. That is not what God's doing. God judges us because He loves us. Because He wants to help us find our joy in Him and not in all the other things that we tend to find our joy in. And this is a judgment we can't ignore, we can't argue with, and we can't hide from, and we don't want to. We really want to hear this. I mean, we want to hear the word every Sunday. But we really want to hear when God says, I'm speaking to you about what you do for me. 
Because God's judgment brings, responding to it, receiving it, not only brings untold benefits, but fellowship with God himself, which is what we want, which is what we're made for. And that's what God desires. It's what he desired for his people at Mount Sinai when he said to them, I have redeemed you to be my treasured possession. God has redeemed us to be his treasured possession. And so he wants to talk to us about our worship and his judgment's trustworthy. And then another thing we see about this judge is just the realness of the relationship. It's not only a serious setting, God's not only supreme judge, but there's a real relationship here. He's not talking about it to us as a distant judge. He's, he's not speaking to the pagan nations. He's speaking to his people. In verse 5, he says, gather to me, who? Who, who's, who's he saying? My faithful ones, my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God's transcendent and he's awesome, but he's not distant. God's speaking to those he has brought to himself through covenant, his saints. You know, growing up as a Catholic, I heard that word a lot. Saint Mary, Saint Joseph, Saint Dominic, that was my patron saint. Um, don't know much about him now, but uh, we heard a lot about saints. If you grew up Catholic, that can be a little confusing because saints are simply those that God has chosen, that he's called out, that he has elected through this covenant he has made with us in Jesus. We didn't make ourselves saints. God did. And he initiated it and he will sustain it the fact that we are saints. As one commentator said, we are not chosen because we are saints. That's for sure. We are not chosen because God knew we would be saints. That's for sure, too. We're chosen because God wanted us to be saints. So we, he speaks to his saints. He summons, he calls us, he gathers us, he judges. And what does he say to us about our worship? Second section. The heart of worship, verses 7 through 15. We looked at the judge of worship. Now we're going to look what God, at what God says about our worship. Two things. The first is this, our hearts. He addresses our hearts. And in verses 7 through 15, he addresses formalism. If you want a single word to define it, it's formalism. Formalistic worship emphasizes the outward forms, the rituals, the practice. It's, it's a mindset that thinks we're doing God a favor when we gather here. It pays a great deal of extension to external actions, liturgies and performances, and not so much to the heart. We just want to make sure we get things right. Israel had made a covenant of sacrifice with God, but they were misunderstanding and misinterpreting the purpose of those sacrifices. They were doing things, but they didn't quite get why they were doing them. They thought God must be pleased because we're going through so much effort to do the right things. Of course, God's not against doing the right things. He says, not for your sacrifices, in verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God doesn't correct their outward actions. He doesn't say, stop doing that. But those sacrifices were a gift from God. They weren't earning them anything. They were a gift from God meant to enable them to draw near to him. They were a gift, not an achievement. Big difference. 
Our worship is a gift, not an achievement. Israel's problem, and ours, was that they thought God might actually need their worship. He might actually do some good for God. They thought he might actually benefit from it, and maybe he would do a favor in return. Not unlike the pagan nations of the time who thought when they offered their food and drink sacrifices in their pagan temples, they were satisfying the appetite of their gods. In response, the gods would bless them with good crops and good health and material prosperity. But those are all idols. God can't be bribed. We can't talk God into something. You ever try and talk God into something? <laughs> if you do this, if I do this, then you need to do this. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't relate to us that way because he doesn't need anything we have. Why in verse 10 he says, by the way, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of, hills, of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. That scripture is often used, I've used it this way, as proof that God will provide for us. That's not what it's saying. That's not the point. I mean, God will provide for us, but that's not the point of that passage. It's saying that we can't offer God anything that he didn't first give to us. So Pastor James Boyce reminds us, as soon as we begin to think that we are doing God a favor by our worship, we dishonor God and slide into a false religion of works righteousness. The idea that God doesn't need what we bring Him offends our self-justifying, self-exalting, self-atoning hearts. We don't, we don't like to be told that that our singing, our preaching, our praying, our communication skills, our exceptional planning, our community, our attendance aren't the most important things about what's going on here. <laughs> we love to place the accent on what we do, just who we are, just we do. What we bring, how we perform, how high we raise our hands, how long we pray. It's where we typically begin when we talk about worship. But God begins with His grace, His initiative, His actions, His revelation, His Spirit, because He doesn't need anything from us. He isn't desperate for our devotion. He's not lonely. He's not saying, I just can't wait for Sunday when they come and meet with me again. He's fine without us, but He created us to know Him. He created us to love Him. As Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, from Him, through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Here's the irony. We can think God needs our worship and be totally unaware of our own need for him. But God's relationship has always been marked by his initiative. He's the one who called out to Adam and Eve. He's the one who, who called out to Noah. He's the one who found Abraham. He's the one who called out to Moses. He's the one who sent the prophets. He's the one who sent his son. He's the one who sent his spirit. God does everything. And we are the glad recipients. We have done nothing. We can do nothing to summon God, to merit his attention, or deserve his blessing. He wants to be with us. It's incredible. So that's the heart of worship. What does it look like, though? What what does it look like? Well, in verse 14 and 15, we find out. 
offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God is looking, when we gather, God is looking for the glad realization that he has done everything we needed to be done to have a relationship with him. He's done it all. And isn't it comforting to hear God say that when we call upon him in the day of trouble and he delivers us, that brings him glory. And sometimes we can walk in and we can look around and think, these people are so put together. Everybody's doing well. I'm doing horrible. You know what God says? Call out to me right now in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you. That will bring me glory. You're looking for some way that you have to be to bring me glory. Well, yes, we'll talk about that in a moment. But right now, I just want you to know, I've given you everything you could possibly need. It's all found in me. And I just want you to call out to me. Lord, I need you. That brings God glory. So, it's, it's, not a, it's not a bad thing to say we're needy. It is what God looks for. It's what Jesus is drawn to. So when we come to God in worship, he's looking for hearts that are genuinely thankful and dependent because everything we have comes from him. What glorifies God is to offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's to come in to say, Lord, my blessings far exceed my trials. Lord, there are so many things. I, there are so many things I don't see that you're doing for me. Help me to see them because I want to be more thankful. I got parents who care for me. I got a house I live in. I have clothes on my body. I'm here. There are so many things. This beautiful day. Lord, you have been so kind. What honors God? A heart of thanksgiving. Just say. Thank you that you have given me everything I need. You are everything I need, and I want people to know it. That's why I'm here. So that's the heart of worship. We're thankful. We're dependent. In verse 16, the focus changes. Do you notice that? But to the wicked, God says. I don't know if we identified ourselves with that. Yeah, those wicked. Yeah. Go get them, God. God has, God has been saying, you can't give me, give me anything that I haven't given you first. Now, he addresses those who take gathered worship for granted. To those who assume that we can honor God with our lips and dishonor him with our lives. So the third section is the life of worship. It's the remainder of the psalm. Verses 16 through 23. God-pleasing worship is offered not only by those who are genuinely thankful but humbly obedient. In the first section, God's concern with our worship was formalism. In this section, his concern is hypocrisy. But to the wicked God says, verse 16, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? This concern is rooted in the first concern. Christians who go through the motions of worship in a gathering and think they're doing God a favor will eventually forget what it means to honor God at all. This point refers to what theologian John Webster says is one of the basic rules for understanding the Christian gospel. Grace and godliness must never be separated. Grace and godliness must never be separated. Gift and call. Promise and command. 
mercy, and obligation. Always and everywhere, the gospel keeps them together. And in the next four verses, God gets specific about what makes their worship hypocritical. They claim to be among God's treasured possession, redeemed for His glory, but He's saying, your lives say something different. So in verse 17, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. The heart of hypocrisy is claiming to worship God but not honoring and treasuring His word, what He has said. And to make the point, He's going to refer to three commandments, three of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh, Eighth, and Ninth Commandments, as a representation for the ways that God's people were disobeying and dishonoring Him. And as we unpack God's rebuke, we just might find ourselves among those God is speaking to. Verse 18 if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. It's against the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Now, when we think of stealing, we think of you know, big things like robbing a bank or hijacking someone's car, taking whatever isn't ours. But stealing could be wasting time at work. You're stealing from your employer. It could be taking credit for what someone else did. Can we not saying anything when the person at Giant doesn't charge you for an item in your cart? Just saying, well, that's a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> God addresses not only what we do, but what we approve of in others, what we're attracted to, what we allow. He says, you are pleased with him. You see a thief, you're pleased with him. You might be thinking, oh, wow, they got it. Anytime you feel, they got away with it. That's what you're doing. You're pleased with him. You're saying, I wish I could do that and get away with it. Same is true for what he says next, drawn from the seventh commandment. He says, you not only commit adultery, you keep company with adulterers. What? Maybe, maybe you aren't bothered by pornographic or sensual movies. Maybe you laugh inwardly or maybe outwardly at jokes that mock God's good design for sex. Maybe you keep telling yourself, I won't do that again, and then you do it again. You gather with God's people on Sundays and proclaim His word, but during the week you keep company with adulterers. He goes on in verse 19 to 20. Talks about breaking the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He says, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You speak sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And what he's talking about here is just the freedom we have with our speech to say whatever we want to say, not realizing that God weighs every word we say. I was thinking about last night with the reunion, how I want to say things that Make me sound wonderful, nice, great, you know? So he's talking about not putting guardrails on our speech. We, 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 don't, we don't say the things maybe that we should say. We, we say what looks good. We say what we, or maybe we say what we want to say. Say what we feel and think. We broadcast it on social media. Or maybe we twist what others say and exaggerate what they say. We would never do that to our own language. You magnify the 
I should say we, <laughs> magnify the inconsistencies in the words of others and never question our own. That wasn't true, that wasn't true. And they say, well, what you said wasn't true either. Oh, yes, it was. We just have a different perspective. We use our words like swords that pierce the hearts of others, even friends and relatives. Asaph could have gone on, but he identifies the root of all these sins, the thought that lies behind him in verse 21. He said, these things you have done, and I have been silent. Remember at the beginning of the psalm, he wasn't silent. In verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Now he's saying, these things you've done, I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Alan Ross in his commentary in this verse says, we confuse God's patience with God's permission. We don't want to confuse God's patience with God's permission. We confuse God's silence with God's satisfaction. God makes it clear that not only are gatherings, but our lives are meant to exalt Him. And what exalts God in our lives? Obedience, humility, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and thanksgiving. Because God-pleasing worship is offered not only by those who are genuinely thankful, but humbly obedient. So how do we get to that place where our worship is hypocritical? Because it can happen to any of us. We replace God with ourselves. That's all we need to do. We exalt ourselves rather than God. And he points out in verse 21, he says, you thought I was one like yourself, which actually translate, translates, you thought I am was like you. I am being the name for God that he gave to Moses. You thought I am was like you. We exalt ourselves to God's position and think, yeah, he's a lot like us. But he's not a lot like us. <laughs> he's God and we aren't. So he goes on to say, verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. That is, that is heavy language. You know what God warns us against? Not cursing him, not slandering him, not arguing with him, not despising him. What do we need to hear? What does he warn us against? Forgetting him. Ignoring him. Which is why when it comes to our gatherings, one of our greatest dangers is just forgetting God, forgetting who he is, forgetting that he's the mighty one, forgetting that he has a claim on our lives, forgetting that he's God, the Lord, our God, forgetting that he's surrounded by a devouring fire and a stormy tempest, forgetting that he is not like us, and forgetting that it's not the greatness of us that makes these meetings so significant. It's not the greatness of our liturgy, not the greatness of our planning, our preaching, our personality, our charisma, our community. People aren't starved for those things. We aren't starved for those things. We are starved for the greatness of God. And that's what he wants to give us. And if people are going to see the greatness of God in our gatherings, they need to see us humbly obey him outside our gatherings. That's how that all comes together. So as we walk through those things that God confronts, I, I feel this sobering. <laughs> just like, 
every time I go through this, like, yeah, it's not just those people out there, it's, it's me. I have tendencies towards formalism. I have tendencies towards hypocrisy. Why wouldn't God tear me apart? Why wouldn't God tear you apart? Because he, he tore his son apart. For all our formalism, for all our hypocrisy, for all our sin. He was pleased to crush his perfect and beautiful son on the cross, making him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that something to be thankful for? First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's the reason we can gather here on Sundays as God's people and not be judged as his enemies. So he finishes with this, The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What glorifies God? Thanking Him. Overflowing with gratefulness. Being amazed. As we sang this morning, were you amazed? As we sing every Sunday, are we amazed? Are we in awe? Are we like incredulous looking around going, can you believe we're here? I mean, when I'm a guest at a church, I'm usually in the front, and there'll be numerous times I'm just looking around. You may think it's weird, but we're teaching and admonishing one another, so I think it's a part of that. And then the other part is just, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> Can you believe that we get to do this, that we get to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, and God doesn't say, out of my presence. He's the one who invited us. He's the one who made it possible. How gracious of God to judge our worship. How kind to remind us of our ever-present desire to impress Him in the fruitlessness of that. How merciful of God to remind us that when He calls us together every week as a church, He calls us not to glory in ourselves, but to remember, rehearse, and revel in the salvation that is ours through the finished work of Christ. Amen. So may next week be a time of wonder, awe, and amazement and thankfulness. And may this week be a week of humble obedience for what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who enables us to hear and respond to your word. You are gracious and good and kind and merciful. And we thank you that you have spoken to us about how we are to come to you with gratefulness and live with humble obedience because of all you have accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And may it be so, for the glory of his name. Amen.